Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Okay, so last Sunday, this message, by the way, I'm excited about it. I love the subject matter. Uh, The subject matter, uh, dealing with the stars and and whatnot, might not be everybody's cup of tea, but listen, because it it is more pertinent than you might think. I referenced last Sunday the fact that the traditional church calendar uh, recognizes Christmas tide or the Christmas season as going until January 6th. Now, we're again, we're not a liturgical church in the sense that we observe the church calendar, but when we talk about you know, the 12 days of Christmas, not the song, but the 12 days of the Christmas season, it might surprise you to learn, as it did me when I learned it, that Christmas isn't the last day. Christmas isn't the, the, the 12th day. That's the first day. Actually, Christmas Eve. It's Christmas Eve, then Christmas, and then you've got the, typically the feasts. And this changes from tradition to tradition, uh, country to country, uh, and age to age. But uh, typically, the feasts that are observed, the ob- observations that are recognized during Christmas tide include, of course, uh, the shepherds, uh, Mary, even the circumcision of Jesus, uh, of course his birth, Uh, but, and there are various other observations woven in through those days, but the last day of the Christmas season is the Epiphany, which is centered on, guess what, the adoration of the Magi. This is the last official Christmas feast according to the church calendar. And It's celebrated often either on that day or on the closest Sunday or the first Sunday following the Epiphany, which is June 6th. So here we are, right, going along with ancient church tradition, celebrating the adoration of the Magi the first Sunday after the 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 Feast of the Epiphany. All right. Are you excited yet? The Epiphany also is known in some circles as, as Three Kings Day. And you probably know why, if you remember your children's songs. And we'll talk about that in a minute. What I think I have seen over the years, uh, and this isn't a criticism as much as it is an observation, and it's a broad brush observation, and it certainly doesn't apply to everybody, is that while we certainly believe in the, the, the visit of the Magi, and we can see some interesting things and recognize that, hey, it's, an, it's Scripture, so it's important, we don't always give it a real high place in terms of its importance to God's overall plan of salvation. But I think it belongs there. I think there's some significance that we have overlooked, not just historically, but significant to us as 21st century century believers who are called and commanded to live the gospel and preach the gospel. Before we get into some details, let's read Matthew's account. He is, his is the only account. He's the only one of the gospel writers who records the visit. And we begin in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, 
in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had, rec- when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they they departed for their own country another way. So, there's a lot of stuff in there, and we are not going to hit everything. We're not, for instance, going to talk about the significance of each one of those gifts, but each one of those gifts has a, uh, an application lead up to and including the burial of Jesus. But we do have some questions I want to answer, and some of these things, many of them, in fact, I know are known to a lot of you, but I always want to be sensitive to the fact that it is almost certainly that there's somebody in here who's hearing these things for the first time, take for granted something that I've known for a long time, and therefore haven't addressed it uh, from the pulpit. Uh, But I want to today. Um, And and you'll hear some things, I think, that that will uh, either surprise you or at least enlighten you. But but for those of you who know the details, uh, who can maybe predict some things I'm talking about, you know that this account that we just read in Matthew has been warped wonderfully. (laughs) by some misunderstandings that are rooted in songs, plays, nativity scenes, and even simple uh, word usage. And these, these confusions have uh, gone on for centuries. You know, what's meant with, we three kings of Orient are, right there. What do you picture? Three kings from China, or something like that, right? Doesn't say anything about them being kings, does it? And we hear the word oriental, or Orient. Orient in this sense simply means east. Oriental is eastern, occidental is western. It's just the direction they were coming from, that part of the world, not necessarily what we consider Asia. This story, uh, first, let's this, maybe the, the, the most pedestrian question here is, why do we say three? And you know the answer to that question. It's because it mentions three gifts, but it says nothing about how many there actually were who appeared before Herod. And we can't make sweeping statements and pronounce them as categorically true, but we do have extra-biblical sources of information about the Magi, these wise men. Uh, This this word, Magi, uh, is where we get the word magic and magus. They're often described as astrologers. Um, I use that word, and I'll continue to use it in this message, but please don't get the idea that we're talking about astrologers like these dopes who write your horoscopes for the newspapers these days. It's not that nonsense, okay? It really was more of a combination of uh, genuine astronomy and religion and philosophy. Uh, they, they, they combined also art uh, with their science and philosophy and religion, 
and they operated as advisors to people, especially to rulers, to important people in their homeland, and actually traveled uh, many times to visit rulers in other lands. They, now, and although they combined these different fields of study, a big part of what they did was to study the skies, look at the stars, and more specifically, the movement of the planets among the stars. We'll talk a little bit more on that later, too. They were also almost certainly from Persia. Now, you take any biblical doctrine, and good luck finding a 100% universal agreement on it from every scholar. But there is pretty wide agreement that the magi that are mentioned here were Persian wise men, Persian astrologers. And uh, they uh, obviously came from east of Israel. If they lived in the capital of Persia, or more likely Babylon, which wasn't the official capital of Persia, but operated as, you know, in a practical sense, really served as more of a capital, they traveled at least 850 miles, probably well over 1,000 miles to get there. So it was worth it to them for whatever reason. Very significant, because the, the Magi were trained from generation to generation in this wide range of subjects that were handed down for centuries, uh, and they existed among the Babylonians uh, even before Persia came into power over them. So these guys came from Persia. They inherited a great deal of these traditions from Babylon all these years before, and something happened that caused them to make a thousand-mile journey to, see, uh, to, to come to Jerusalem. But when we look back into the ancient Persians, and realize that these, this class and this uh, group of men known as the Magi served in Babylon, this is where we draw a very important line to the prophet Daniel. Now this is, again, a very brief overview because I want to get all this in today. But you can read about it in the book of, what's the name of that book of the Bible? Daniel. That's where you find the story of Daniel. And uh, you remember probably that when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, can't rehash all this, but the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, and then about 100 years later, in about 600 B.C., uh, the Babylonians came in. And this was God's judgment. This didn't take the prophets by surprise. shouldn't have taken the people by surprise. God told them he was going to bring this nation in. Uh, to judge them and to discipline them, and that they would live in this, in this captivity uh, for 70 years. And when this happened, Nebuchadnezzar gave instructions to go among the... He didn't just come in and just wholesale slaughter people. He just took power. He took authority, and he gave instructions to go through the people and find young men, young men who were knowledgeable, with a propensity for learning, and good-looking. These were the qualifications. Find me as many good-looking young men who already know stuff and who can demonstrate that they can learn stuff. And he wanted to bring them in, train them, give them special treatments, train them in all the culture and the literature and the wisdom and the magic of Babylon and the language so that they could then go out and teach the other people. It's a pretty organized plan. And so they gathered up, I don't know how many total, but after a period of testing 
and training and more testing and an interview with the king, there were four candidates that stood head and shoulders out of the whole group. Daniel, Hananiah, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And those last three guys, you know them better as the names that Nebuchadnezzar gave them. Yes. Uh, Daniel was also given a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, but we still know him better as Daniel. But the other guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you'll notice as you read that Daniel and the boys, we, we know the stories, right? We, we know the story of the uh, dream that they, they, that they were told to tell the king and interpret. This is one of my all-time favorite stories in the Bible because it talks about how Nebuchadnezzar brings his astrologers, his soothsayers, his wise men, his magicians in to say, I had a dream. It disturbed me. I need you to tell me what it was and, uh, and give me the interpretation. They're like, oh, yes, king, live forever. Tell us, what, tell us your dream and we'll tell you what it means. He goes, no, I need you to tell me the dream. That way, I'll know your interpretation's correct. And they're like, not fair. We can't interpret a dream if you don't tell me what it was. He says, if you can get the interpretation by magic, why don't you get the dream by magic? And he gives the order to kill all of the magicians, all the wise men, all these uh, advisors that so much have been invested in. But Daniel speaks up and says, we'll do it, king. Give us a little time here. We're going to seek the Lord. And he saves the lives of I don't know how many of these men by getting the dream and the interpretation from God, and so impresses Nebuchadnezzar that he is elevated to essentially prime minister of Babylon, and he gets permission for the other three to serve him, sort of also in in promoted, elevated capacity. And then we also have the uh, episode of the fiery furnace. But I want you to see something. These guys didn't just get these occasional miraculous interventions from God. During the training... Before the dream, before the, uh, the image in the fiery furnace, it says this, that uh, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. It says that in matters of all wisdom and understanding, the king found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers in his realm. This is what they demonstrated before anything was on the line. Now, amazingly, Daniel served in that capacity and with that authority for uh, even after the Medes and then the Persians came in. So it was like, trans, you know, he's, he was taken captive by the Babylonians and instead of being executed or, or cast out, he then serves the Medes, he serves the Persians, several different rulers... And in addition to being a government official, this is super, super important. It says that um, he was given, he became the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. This was his special province. He had general government authority, but his special province was to oversee all the wise men, all the magicians, all the astrologers. And in Daniel chapter 9, you know, he, he served in this capacity. He had some other run-ins with kings. Remember the lion's den? 
Uh, remember the handwriting on the wall? There were all sorts of opportunities for him to speak to kings. But also during this time, he recorded several prophecies. And in Daniel chapter 9, he prophesied about the coming Messiah and even included a timetable. Do you remember this? He trained the Magi. Once he was elevated to that position, he not only knew more than them, he was responsible for them. He administrated their program and trained the Magi in all wisdom, including the proper interpretation of the skies. And that training was likely, very likely, faithfully handed down for centuries until we get to around 4 B.C. Now, when we talk about, you've probably read articles if you're interested in any of this stuff, you know, when was Jesus born? Well, obviously, he was born in year one. Uh, but you, when you read, well, he was maybe born in 3 B.C., 4 B.C., uh, 7 B.C. Well, how could Jesus be born before Christ? Duh, but... Don't panic when you read that stuff. When you read those dates, it has to do with corrections they've made to the calendar over the years. They've had, uh, you know, the, and I'm not an expert on this, but all it is is just adjustments they've made in the way things are recorded. So don't let your brain go tilt when you read that, oh, Jesus was likely born in 2 B.C., whatever. But we do know you can narrow it down to probably 2 to 4 B.C. when we read about the events in Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. Uh... And, and that's important because in this time frame, according to the Bible, these magi, who were inheritors of education and wisdom that had been handed down from Daniel, the prophet, saw something in the sky that told them a mighty king had been born in Judea. You might find it interesting. I sort of mentioned it on the oblique a minute ago. They visited other kings. There's record that they visited Nero in uh, 66 AD. There's also evidence that they had already visited Herod, Herod once in 10 BC. I don't know why. But it wasn't unheard of. But it was rare. It was a big deal. It's not something that happened every day or even every year. And one of the reasons is that they traveled in fairly large caravans. They needed, of course, this was a long journey, and they needed supplies for that journey. And they needed, uh, with the gifts and the wealth that they were bringing, they needed protection, so they probably had a contingent of soldiers or at least armed guards. I've heard over the years that they typically traveled in caravans uh, of, of groups of 50 to 100. I did not find that number in my recent research, but the bottom line is it wasn't just three dudes on camels. Okay? They presented themselves to Herod, asked their questions, and they are then led to Bethlehem. And this got some attention. It said all Jerusalem was troubled. Herod was troubled. They noticed this. This was a big a visit from the Magi, was, again, a big deal. And notice this. We're still covering some of the detailed details here. When they go to uh, Bethlehem, they came where? They came to the manger. Uh, and drop their gifts off along with the shepherds, right? No. They came to the house he was living in. He was living in a house. And also, uh, Matthew uses the term more than once, little child. And that is very distinct in the Greek from baby or infant. And you know what Herod does next when he finds out? It says he ascertained from the wise men when they saw the star. Doesn't tell us 
what, exactly what they said, but when the wise men don't come back, his response is to send a group of murderers to Bethlehem to kill every male child two years old and younger. They saw his star, which signified the birth of a king, two years before they had this conversation with Herod. doesn't mean it took them two years to get there, but it was sometime between when they saw the star and when they decided to go, and then they got there, and Herod says, well, when did you see the star? Well, we saw it. It was two years ago. So he says, all right, if this king was born in the last two years, go kill every male child, because he's trying to, he sees this new king as a threat. So all that to say that Jesus, when the Magi, when the Magi show up, uh, they, they weren't on the scene at the manger. They came much later. Jesus was probably a toddler at this point. And uh, I don't want to make too much of this, but I do believe in a God of abundant provision. And it is certainly worth noting that they brought expensive gifts. Again, not just three guys, but this whole retinue from the east to honor a king who they considered it worth traveling a thousand miles or more to pay homage to. Jesus had a nice little trust fund established for him when he was two years old. Now, back to Jerusalem, because the other image that's burned into our brains is the image of a huge, bright star that was guiding them the whole way. We picture them navigating across the desert. Following yonder star. Oh. So, don't. We, they're, they follow the star, and it leads them, oh, now we're in Jerusalem. All we did was follow the star. They knew where they were going before they left. And then the star disappears, and then it reappears and guides them to Bethlehem. They knew where they were going when they went to Bethlehem before they saw the star. It never says they followed the star. It says we saw his star in the east. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they saw it in the eastern sky. It's kind of like saying, oh, I saw, I saw a meteor shower in California. When I was in California, I saw a meteor shower. When we were in the east, we saw his star. Although, in case you don't know it, not just the sun and moon rise in the east, everything rises in the east. The whole sky looks like it's going like this because the earth is going like that. You know that, right? Unless you're a flat earther, and I, if you are, I love you, and there, there might be. I know a few of them. I'd love to talk to you sometime. But you're wrong, all right? No, sorry, that's just mean, that's just mean. Listen, never mind. I apologize if I just insulted anybody. That wasn't, it wasn't my, um, all, all I really mean by that is I can't explain what's in this in your terms, all right? But I'd love to talk to you, I really would. I'd love to hear your case if you got one. Now, what did they see? This is the part that really starts to fascinate me and tickle my astronomy bone. For one thing, modern astrologers didn't make up the zodiac. This was something that existed and it was known in one form or another since at least 1400 BC. It is simply a region of the sky that is occupied by certain constellations. There are constellations more than just the 12 symbols of the zodiac. There are constellations all over the sky. There are other arrangements of stars. Like the Big Dipper, that's not a constellation. That's called an asterism. But there are patterns in the sky well outside the zodiac. But the zodiac is a band or a lane uh, that, all of the, that if you follow it all the way around the earth, you'll find these constellations if you know where to look. Some of them are more obvious than others. But it is the same path that the sun and the moon and the planets travel through. There are uh, 
the visible planets are Mercury and Venus, they don't really play much into these, uh, the movements that the Magi observe because those are inside the orbit of Earth. But everything outside of us, Mars, the ones we can see, Mars, Jupiter, and Venus, or Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, move more or less through that same lane of stars. And so one of the big things the Magi were involved in was to see what is, where is Jupiter? Is it in this constellation? And if it is, is it there for a reason? Is it close to another planet? They all looked like stars and were considered stars. They didn't know what planets were. They didn't understand the orbits of the planets. Or the, all they saw were how they moved among the other stars. Planets were stars. They were, they were known as wandering stars. All the other stars are more or less fixed in space. Yes, they moved across the sky, but they stayed in the same pattern. The planets moved within that pattern and continue to. You can see that today. It's easy to observe. Night, maybe not night to night, but certainly month to month and even week to week. You can say, ah, tonight Jupiter is right there uh, compared to Orion or compared to whatever. And then a week later, a month later, you see, oh, it's, it's moved to the east because it is. It's moving. It's, it's orbiting the sun just like we are. And it's important to recognize that a lot of what we see uh, uh, that looks like their movement is our movement relative, not just to the stars, but relative to the other planets. Okay? That's important for a reason I'll get to in a minute. It's not the biggest deal in the world, but it is important. So each of these planets, these wandering stars, these special stars, had special meanings to those who made it their business to know this stuff. But and they already... This is before Daniel's on the scene. You had the Magi in Babylon and other, I'm sure, uh, orders of astrologers who would see, ah, there's something important about these stars. And they had their meanings assigned to them. But Daniel, I believe God brought Daniel along at that time to reveal the true meaning that God had written in the stars. Jupiter, for instance, and this is where I think it gets really interesting. Because Jupiter was so bright, and Jupiter is bright because it's big. Venus is bright because it's close and it's cloudy. Jupiter already signified royalty or even deity, being such a bright object. Venus, I'm not, I, didn't say, I, I don't think it figures as significantly because it's an inner planet, but it did signify motherhood and, uh, and birth. And I have to kind of rush this, so listen fast. There have been many, many theories over the years as to what exactly the star was. This is, one, this is a question that gets fun, and you, every year you can read an article about it. Uh, one of the most popular theories is that it was a comet, something that appeared in the sky. A comet's not every, everyone, but I can remember how excited I was when Hale-Bopp appeared. Anybody remember the excitement of comet Hale-Bopp back in 96, I think, 97? Uh, it was around for a long time. It was visible for a long time, but it wasn't something that was always in the sky. But it was visible to the naked eye, I think, for the better part of 18 months. So it was something, it was something special, but it didn't... You, if you've never seen a comet, you don't know what I'm talking about because you picture them as going... Shoo, they don't. They're just a fuzzy star or a star with a tail that, that hang out there and move slowly, slowly, slowly through the sky. Uh, but you know who else... Would uh, I mean, we, we, the reason it's a theory is it's something the, the, the Magi would have noticed. But do you know who else would have noticed that? 
everybody else in the world. The Chinese kept immaculate records of astronomical phenomena, and there is no reason to believe that it was a comet that appeared in that time frame. Uh, same argument with a supernova. That's another one that's, uh, that's often brought because that will appear suddenly. It'll be the brightest object in the sky except for perhaps the moon, uh, well, the sun, but we're talking about the night sky. Uh, and it won't just go kaboom and, and disappear. It'll be visible for a period of months. But again, everybody would see that, and there's no record of it happening in that window of, you know, 1 to 7 or 1 to 4 BC. Here's what I want you to see. It probably... I say almost certainly was not an especially bright object or event. It simply had something to do with the position of the visible planets moving into certain regions of the sky. And only people who were trained to observe it would recognize its significance. In the proper time frame that we're talking about during that, that window of, uh, I say, 2 to 4 BC, there were a number of events. Jupiter moved next to the star. Again, not really, but from our viewpoint, it looked like Jupiter was right next to the star called Regulus. You hear the name Regulus, think the word regal. It also had kingly connotations. Also, it is the brightest star in the constellation Leo, the lion which already had official connection to the Lion of Judah, the tribe of Judah. This happened a few months later because of something called retrograde motion. It happened again, and that's when I talk about the, the, the motion of the earth. It's kind of difficult to picture, and if, it, and if I had a, a model or something, it would be easier to show you. But everything, all these planets are moving the same direction through the sky, but so are we, and because we're closer to the sun, we're moving faster. And so we reach, and this is an easy thing to see if you shut all the lights off and you move these things around and all you're seeing is the lights rather than in 3D, because we don't see it 3D from the earth, do we? But as we reach a certain point in our orbit, Jupiter will go like this, stop, go like this, and then continue in its regular motion. But it all has to do with where we are. It's kind of like you can see a car on the highway moving. Uh, maybe you're on 150, you can see 74, or vice versa, and you can see them move in the same direction you are, and then they slow down or you speed up, and then so relative to you, they're going backwards for a minute while you pass, right? Even though you're all going the same direction. That's kind of what retrograde, do retrograde does. And that's why this is a logical, sorry. If I were better at that, you'd understand it better, and, and uh, if you understand it better, you realize what a poor job I just did explaining that. All that to say, Jupiter doesn't change direction, it just looks like it does. Same with Saturn, same with Mars. They all go through retrograde, but it's retrograde motion, but it's not something they're doing, it's just something we're observing. If the star stopped in the sky, where the, if the star reappeared, and this is something that would have happened because there were several, we call these conjunctions. When a planet moves close to another planet in the sky, or moves close to the moon in the sky, or moves close to an important star in the sky, uh, and again, all these just as they look close. Remember a couple years ago when Saturn and Jupiter uh, were this close in the sky? They almost looked like one star, and everybody was saying, a lot of people were suggesting this is a, a repeat performance of the Christmas star. 
something like it had happened 800 years ago, and then before that it happened 2,000 years ago. I don't think that was it, but it was very, very interesting because it happens so rarely because those planets take so long to get around the sun, and uh, especially Saturn, that it takes a while for them to get that close in the sky again. But these things happen, uh, and it's exciting enough when they just happen, when one gets close to another, but when you involve an important star like Regulus and an important constellation like Leo, it begins to mean something. And Jupiter would have then, uh, at a certain time of night, been invisible, and then reappeared again near Regulus, or perhaps, and this is all theory, I'm just telling you this is a very logical way of understanding what type of thing the Magi saw. And if Jupiter went into retrograde and stopped moving through the sky, they would see it, they would rejoice. Or it could have been a special bright star that God put there to, to, to show them and allow them to celebrate. I think, I got ahead of myself here. I think what was happening was something they saw that had to be red in the stars and would not catch the eye of the casual observer. And all of those things, several uh, Jupiter uh, Regulus conjunctions, all within an 18-month period around 2 to 4 BC, and we're getting closer to why this is important to us. First consider this, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Well, you're familiar with that. And that could mean something as simple as this. And it has meant this to me for many, many years. You walk outside on a perfect night for observation. If you're somewhere, if you're blessed to be somewhere with dark skies, and you look and you see the stars blazing out of the sky, and you say, how can anybody gaze on the beauty of the universe and think that God doesn't exist? That, could all, that might be all that verse means, but read on in verse 2. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. He's talking about the heavens, the stars. That's more than just, wow, isn't that great? There is a message in the stars. Look at Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There are two things that emerge in this passage to bear in mind as we share the gospel. One is that God has put some measure of knowledge of himself in every person. There is something that can be known about God that is in us, and the second thing is that God can be known by what is around us. There is something in us that should be able to respond to the evidence around us and conclude that there is a God. Means, no matter how it feels, when we are witnessing to somebody, we are never starting from absolute ground zero. We are building on something, reaching out to something, deep calling out to deep, 
to something, from something in us to something that God already put in them. Don Richardson, the legendary missionary who wrote the monumental book Peace Child that many of you have probably heard of or read, also wrote a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. I've referenced it before, and in that book, he talks about something that he calls redemptive analogies. These are traditions, uh, religious beliefs, social habits, folklore, all kinds of stuff that are present in every, situ- uh, every civilization in the world and in history. And Richardson contends that somewhere in every one of those cultures, there is a clue. There is something that points to the truth of the gospel. And he does, if you check this book out, he, you know, he starts, he opens the book with the story of Paul uh, at the Areopagus, finding the statue that says, to an unknown God. And he, un- he unearths the story behind that statue and why it was served as such an effective launching pad for Paul's sermon there. But then he gives example after example after example of missionaries that went into unreached places and found something in their culture that pointed to the truth of the gospel. And that's what Peace Child's all about. That's where he stumbled across that idea. He makes a great case for it. Following that line of reasoning, I contend the following, that even before Daniel was on the scene in Babylon, the astrologers, the wise men, the magi, had a rudimentary understanding of the message in the stars and the planets. God put Daniel there to reveal the connection between what they knew and his message to mankind. And here's what is truly beautiful and absolutely applicable to you and me in all this. This episode of the Christmas story is famous. Even people who don't know the details that we've talked about, even people who have false beliefs about the Magi based on, again, cartoons, songs, Christmas cards, pictures, they at least know they have heard of the wise men or the three wise men or the three kings. They, they, they're aware of that reference. And again, it's significant to me that the traditional church calendar wraps up with this adoration of the Magi. And God used this episode, by the way, the visit of the Magi, to at least prepare Joseph and Mary to escape into Egypt and fulfill prophecy. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Before all the little children of Bethlehem were destroyed, or little boys anyway. And big as this deal is and was, this great revelation written in the stars thousands of years ago, possibly billions of years ago, written in the skies even before the Magi were a thing. This message that a great ruler had been born in Judea, one they knew was worth a journey to worship, this revelation was given to who? Gentiles. Gentiles. It's a beautiful thing to consider because we know Jesus was born a Jew. He was born into Jewish society. He ministered almost exclusively in Israel. And we point to Peter's vision and Paul's ministry as explosive events and a departure from that. And, of course, a fulfillment of Jesus' words that the gospel would be preached in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and ultimately the uttermost parts of the earth. But right here, near the beginning of his life, God revealed his birth and his identity to Gentile astrologers. 
And as we read it, we should praise God and celebrate the truth that God's plan was the salvation of all mankind. That was his plan from the beginning. I'm going to wrap this up in a minute. I'm going to interrupt myself long enough to say a couple words about the fast. Number one, do participate. If for uh, medical reasons you can't uh, alter uh, what you're doing in terms of what you eat and what you drink, then choose something like technology or TV, or maybe that's something that God's working on you to deal with anyway. Because one of the, uh, one of the uh, benefits of a fast is the time that you normally spend, you know, in, in my case, preparing and eating food, I can spend in more fervent, more earnest prayer, more time in the Word, and you can too. Uh, it, and maybe you're the type, hey, I never spend more than two minutes making supper anyway. All I do is eat a bowl of cereal or make a quick sandwich. Uh, then maybe in terms of the time factor, it would be more beneficial for you to give up TV for three weeks or video games or something like that. But let God speak to you. And, and really, a fast biblically should have something to do with food. But again, we're not getting legalistic about it. Find something. And again, say this every year, this isn't a matter of us doing something, afflicting ourselves, afflicting our flesh so that we can get God's attention or earn his approval. What does it do? It gets our attention doesn't get God's attention on us. It gets our, our, our attention on God. It is us, what? Laying aside something natural in pursuit of something supernatural. This can be a rich time. I believe it will be. But if we, since we're doing this as a church, keep the church in mind. Yes, seek uh, his guidance. Seek his correction uh, for yourself, for your family. Uh, but also pray and seek the Lord for Living Word Family Church. This is a church fast. You can fast for you. You can fast for your family anytime. This three-week fast is a church fast, so at least include Living Word Family Church uh, and its leadership and its direction and every, anything else in, in your prayers because uh, we prosper together. Amen? I don't mean prosper just in the money sense. I mean in everything. He, he desires that we prosper in life. Um, again, I will say more about the fast next week, the next two weeks, as a matter of fact. Meanwhile, while I'm wrapping this up, praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. Listen, God, you stand up with me too. You've been sitting a while. God arranged the very stars in the sky to tell a story that is still being told. If this is the kind of sermon, if this is the kind of information that flips your switch, and again, I, I apologize if it's not yours, uh, and I know it's not everybody's, but you've been very polite, and you at least uh, acted very attentive. Uh, I cannot recommend this book without qualification, because it's been years since I've even seen it. I went to look for it the other day. It's kind of hard to find, uh, and very expensive if you find a copy, so maybe make a list, and for pastor's birthday, copy of this book. Uh, it's a book by D. James Kennedy about the biblical meaning behind the Zodiac. And he tells how the whole, the 12 signs of the Zodiac actually tell the gospel story. And I don't know how many of you remember D. James Kennedy, pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church for a number of years. Brilliant, brilliant author, brilliant speaker. And he delivered this. I actually heard uh, a good chunk of that because he preached it on television years ago. Uh, but the book is out there somewhere. And if, if that's something that you want to follow up, or maybe you can find the sermons on YouTube, 
uh, that, that, that would be another resource you could explore. Uh, but I do believe, from what, not because of what Kennedy wrote, uh, but because of what Scripture tells us, because of what Psalm 19 says, because of what Romans chapter 1 says, that God did put a message in all of nature, and certainly, perhaps most notably, in the stars. And it's a message that is still there, and it's a message that's still being told. He surrounded us with creation, and although this creation around us here on earth suffers because of the fall, the effects of sin, all this nature that surrounds us still speaks of God's creative genius. And we are called, we are commissioned to spell that message out to all mankind. They can see what we see. An atheistic scientist can look at a plant or a, an animal's defense mechanism and say, evolution was so clever. It's our job to point out to the world that these things that are so amazing, that even amaze scientists, they're amazing because a genius created them, a super genius, a supernatural God spoke these things into existence. He's the one who thought of them. Just like Daniel didn't say, hey, look, you guys, there's stars up there, and some of them move, and there's meanings. They already knew all that. Daniel's job was to show them the true meaning and the true wisdom behind those motions and everything else in the sky. Never forget, the visible stars should remind us that it's just as true today that God has put knowledge of himself inside everybody. Every person we meet, it might be hidden under a load of guilt, a load of sin, a load of denial, but it's there. And I mention that because it should give us confidence as we live the gospel and preach the gospel. When you go out and look at the sky, look at the stars, and you say, thank God for leaving such a great witness of yourself. Remember, that same spark is in that person God has called you to witness to. Really should give you confidence. Meanwhile, what about you? Have you ignored the greatness of creation? Have you ignored the message in the stars, the message in nature that surrounds you? Have you ignored that spark of life and that spark of knowledge that God put in you? Jesus Christ is the only way to be reconciled to God. When I talk about that seed, that spark of knowledge that's buried under guilt, buried under sin, buried under denial, every one of us has to deal with that sin and that guilt. That, well, let me put it this way. That sin has to be dealt with. The bad news is that we can't deal with it. It's too much. It will separate us from God for eternity unless we can get somebody else to remove that load for us. And that's exactly what the cross was about. It's the only way out from under that. It's the only way for that spark to catch fire and we come to a full knowledge of who God is and what he has done. It's called being born again. It is a literal new birth for your spirit. If you've never made that decision to receive that free gift, so to surrender your life to the God who gave the price of his son to buy you back, please do that today. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the written word. Thank you for the message in the stars. Thank you for faithful servants down through the ages who have properly interpreted those messages and been such a blessing to so many people, so many cultures. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, for showing us right out of the gate that your love 
for the Gentiles is no less than your love for the Jews. We thank you for Jesus, that he died for the world, for the sins of the world. And it's my prayer, and I believe it's the prayer of every believer in the sound of my voice, that if there is anyone in the sound of my voice who does not yet believe, who does not yet know you as Father, does not yet know Jesus as Savior, that you will convict them of their need, grant them the wisdom and the boldness and the humility to receive that gift today in Jesus' name. If you want to make that decision, please, while they sing this closing song, come up here and let me pray with you. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.